This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Continuing our series that we'll be running throughout the summer uh, through the book of Psalms. We've got various preachers and um, it's going to be so, so lovely. So I do want to commend it to you and invite you, come and, come and be in, come and lean in, allow the Psalms to, to do us lots of good um, and to come and support. It's, summer is a, is a funny time because we all feel like, oh, I want to take a bit of downtime, but actually it's such a critical time to keep building momentum. There's so many guests and visitors that come and visit uh, during the summers. So to be there, to engage, to welcome, to make friends and invite them into your worlds, that's the ideal and perfect time. So then the summer, we just plow on through. Sorry, in September, we just plow on through. So in my devotional time in the last six weeks odd, um, I've happened to have been working through this book. It's a book by Alan Frau, um, and it's called Psalms for the Saturated Soul. And I, I just can't recommend this more highly. A fantastic read, easy read. And it's very special, particularly because Alan um, is one of our global team within the advanced movement. And we are possibly going to have Alan come and preach with us on Sunday, be with us on Sunday in October, I think it is. So there's a chance, okay? So it'll be lovely. So now you know who we're talking about. That's Alan Frau. And this, the, the whole book is built around Psalm 42. So when I had the opportunity for this morning to kind of speak, I thought, ah, it's a natural one. Let's talk about Psalm 42. And um, I thought, let's allow Ellen's book and some of my own thoughts out of my time over the last couple of weeks to just help us uh, navigate Psalm 42 and ask God to do us a lot of good through it. But self, uh, Psalm 42 self-declares it's for people who are thirsty. <laughs> so to hear us talking this morning about people who are thirsty for God, well, this is for us. This is for you. So, I wonder, are you desperate for God this morning? Uh, you might be desperate for a variety of reasons. You know, there, if there are 80 people in this room, that, there'll be 80 reasons why we would be desperate for God. Some would be because it's, whoa, it's going really well, and we want to keep God in our lives and keep make, keeping Him first and helping Him to guide us. Some of us, is going really, really badly, and we need God. Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum... Psalm 42 is for us, it's for you. And the psalm gets real. It gets very, very real, as so many of the psalms do. Keeps it real. You'll notice that the psalm gives you permission to be raw, to be vulnerable, to be real, 
keep it honest with God and with one another, and it gives us a common language of reality of life and the emotions that are part and parcel of our lives. And the Psalms also offer us a model for moving through these emotions because we understand there's a better place. There's a better future than just where we are right now. And because the Psalms are are prophetic poetry in, in so many ways, they give us this hope of a better future through the Messiah that ultimately fulfills all of these dreams, hopes, and expectations and offers a future salvation for His people. So with that in mind, we're going to read Psalm 42 slowly. I know often we just kind of read through and then we'll go, we're just going to go slowly through it this morning, uh, possibly because the actual process that, that the psalmist speaks of is a slow process. There are no quick fixes. There's no silver bullet. Sitting here this morning doesn't solve our problems or help us, but it does allow us to start the process, to keep leaning in both to God and to one another as we do that. So, let's just pray. God, what a privilege to open your scriptures. We know they are your words breathed out, penned by the hands of men, but inspired by the Spirit. We love to hear a psalm 3,000 years old, but as relevant today as it was the day it was penned. Lord, would we encounter you this morning? Would you open us up, allow us to pour ourselves out afresh and be poured into again by you, the living God? Do us good, Lord, we pray that we would know you and worship you that much more wonderfully. Amen. Amen. Great. So let's start verses 1, 2, and 3. It's a common one, isn't it? You know this one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they, the people, say to me all the day long, where is your God? And the psalmist opens in this beautiful place with a deer, this image of a deer that is either because of drought in the land or probably exerting itself, um, overexertion, and it's exhausted and it needs water. And I think the, uh, the context of the psalm probably means the latter. I think it's through overexertion and exhaustion that it is needing of water. In, the, in survival, and we've got a couple of Air Force guys here this morning, in, in survival there's kind of the rule of fours. I was in the Air Force. Thanks, Howard. I didn't mention that. Um, there's a thing called the rule of fours, which is kind of you can live 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air. And it's fascinating how in the psalm, the psalmist kind of highlights all three of those essential elements and brings them out as essential for life. And when you're getting them right, they do us ultimate good. Uh, I was doing a, a training exercise at one point, and 
it was at night time, absolutely exhausted. We were being, um, it was an escape and evasion exercise, and we were being chased by guys with dogs and helicopters and all sorts of fun things. And I, I had no more water, and I'd, I'd probably skipped a, an entire day at that point, and I couldn't go anymore, and there was this horrible, stagnant, smelly pool of water, and I just stuck my head in and drank. There wasn't time to boil. I know you think, I'll boil the water. There wasn't time. I would have um, given away our position. So I drank it, and I, it was almost the death of me. I had to be uh, evacuated out of the exercise very, very, very bad. And it's, it's not surprising that, like a deer, our psalmist recognizes that it's not just water that we need. It's, it's not just you know, any water that'll do. We need flowing water. Yeah. We need living water. Flowing streams of good, clean, refreshing, life-giving water. His soul thirsts not only for God, but indeed the living God. And he brings these two images together for us as the reader. The living God who is life and who gives life, who flows, life flows from Him. And I find this such a helpful insight. You know, how many of our problems arise because we're drinking from this foul, stagnant, smelly pool of God's past grace rather than fresh, everyday streams of God's new, present grace every day. And the psalmist recognizes that this is a problem in his life, and we immediately can feel a connection. You know, 3,000 years on, we know that this is true in our lives. When we're drinking from stagnant water, we know it, we feel it, we recognize it. And so we can learn from our psalmist this morning. Spurgeon sort of double-clicks on this. He says, ease, our writer, did not seek. Honor he did not covet, but the enjoyment of communion with God was an urgent need of his soul. He reviewed it not merely as the sweetest of all luxuries, but as an absolute necessity like water to a stag. Oh, God, you are a necessity for life. And you can hear the desperate longing in the psalmist. When shall I come and appear before the Lord? So the sons of Korah who... One of them obviously wrote this psalm. They were worship leaders in the time of David. And they would have ministered and worshipped and led. And this is his declaration. He's like, oh God, I long for those days. And the psalmist might have been desperate for, for flowing streams of water, but then he also talks about food. There's nothing. There's no sustenance. The only food feeding his soul are the tears of longing for God, the pain, the sting of it, in the midst of the taunts about where is your God when you need Him. Again, Spurgeon saying the next best thing to living in the light of the Lord's love is to be unhappy until we have it and to pant hourly after it. Maybe we're in that position Maybe we're longing, we're needing, we're desperate for. And our tears 
are the next best thing because they demand the faithfulness of God. It's a reliance on Him. It's a calling out to Him, a hunger, a pant hourly after Him. So in verse 4, we continue, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God and glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And there's a very sad uh, application that, that comes out of this for, for the real world. Um, I think, before I get there, sorry, let me just say that I think is a question. So is he thirsty or is he so full that he needs to pour himself out? Is he thirsty, desperate, or is he full? Well, he's both. Somehow, he is both. We can be full of so much stagnant water (laughs) that we were unable to be refreshed by the streams of God. So full of other stuff, so full of rubbish that he's saying, actually, I need to pour myself out in order to be refilled. And this is one of the reasons that that we spoke about some of the wonderful practices in our previous series called Formed. And we'll continue every now and again. We'll interject with a, a practice, a habit, because we find that these are God's ways of detoxing the soul, detoxing the body and the mind. I must say, I'm afraid a bit of, our, of this coming summer holidays for us as a family because phones, computers, social media, it just, it feels like we're full already of this stuff and we haven't already, we haven't started yet. I mean, the idea is exhausting. But it's not just bad stuff that fills us up, is it? it, it anything, good or bad in too much quantity or in overemphasis fills us up and can block the flow of God's gracious, life-giving flow stream to us. And the, the psalmist remembers some wonderful memories. And this is where it gets painful. It, he, he remembers where he was part of the worship team of his church. And he would lead the people, and they were writing songs, and there was energy and vibe, and woohoo! And it was a time that he felt close to God, close to God's people, but something changed, and he seemed to have drifted away. And, and this is so sadly a real life situation for so very many people, and it's played out in churches almost weekly and in the media. Time and time again, we have worship leaders, church leaders, group leaders, faithful husbands, wives, faithful followers, disciples of Jesus who start so well, close to God, loving Him, loving His people. And maybe it's the spotlight, maybe it's fame, whatever it is, there are stuff that just keeps clogging the soul. And the free flow of God's stream, fresh stream of water gets clogged up. And increasingly, you've got to fake it till you make it. 
wearing a mask. And there are three common dangers that kind of come about from this oversaturated soul, from being clogged up that the psalmist might have fallen into and probably relevant to us as well. You know, when you're oversaturated, you can get stuck in the past. You can get stuck in, oh, God was so good and I was good and that was me back then and I was such a good Christian and I was such a good person and that was back then and you look at yourself now and you're dry and parched and useless to man or beast, but you're still stuck thinking that is you. Or the bad, you get stuck in the bad and you can't move on and can't move forward. And the other thing is that we ended up faking it, like we said. You just, yeah, mask on, ha-ha, fake it till we make it. And lastly, what can happen is you explode. You're so bunged up that from this fermentation of stuff going on, it's Maybe some of those feel familiar to us this morning. So whether it's one of these three dangers that happened to our psalmist, we probably will never know. But we find him desperate, thirsty, hungry, and alone. So let's move on. Verse 5, and he asks, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So next we see that the psalmist inquire of his own soul. He's doing some soul searching, if you will. Why are you so downcast? Well, downcast is, is an interesting word. In the Hebrew, it kind of has a spectrum of things that it could mean from general, I'm a bit dull and gloomy this morning, to total emotional breakdown on the other side of the spectrum. And I think that's helpful that there is such a spectrum, if you go to the next slide, you know, and you can find yourself anywhere from gloomy to total emotional breakdown at some phase in our lives, whether that's now, it will happen. We do get there. We do live there. And I think our psalmist is probably more on the extreme end of the spectrum if we understand him correctly. But this is relevant because We'll, we, we'll all live there at some point. And I find the way that he, he then processes his pain to be so helpful for us as well. He, he starts at this point by almost saying, I'm so frustrated. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be feeling like this. Have you ever felt that? Things seem to get worse because he feels bad about feeling bad. <laughs> Downward spiral. But the psalmist doesn't stay there. He, he doesn't fall into the trap that he could have easily done and that we often can easily fall into at this point. You know, he interrogates his soul about why he feels that way, not that he feels that way. The trap is to get stuck in the place of that my soul feels like this. Not why, but it does 
It feels so horrible. It's real and it's true. And get stuck there. My soul is downcast and that's just the way it is. That's not where he goes. There are already, as we will see, multiple good reasons, and we'll find out some more, why the psalmist relevantly feels downcast. But all of those good reasons, as good as they might be, are not good enough in the face of the hope and the salvation that he knows is found in his God. But not only his God, not only God, he says, my God. He's starting to kind of lean into the the knowledge of His God. Verse 6, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. It is telling how the psalmist then starts bringing his emotions to his God. He says, I remember you. You know, he's no longer just speaking, he's speaking to God prayerfully. And he seems to report to God through this psalm, this prayer, again, that his soul is downcast. He, he acknowledges the state of his emotions. That's good and healthy and right and proper and appropriate. But in these times, we can also be tempted to do two things. When you feel like that, when you feel, oh, my soul is so downcast. You can either choose to stay away from God because we feel ashamed about feeling ashamed. Or two, we can just act as if God doesn't know what's going on in our lives. So you can either hide like Adam and Eve did. They try to hide away, not knowing that God is the God who sees all things straight into the heart, knows us, cares us, cares for us. The psalmist's method of dealing with this, and I, and I dare say the only way I've ever been able to actually functionally walk, work through my own sin and my own pain and loss is to actually turn and run to God, run into His grace, run into His arms. And I've always been incapable of dealing with it on my own. I always, I often try but I quickly learned early on, I think even in the midst of my sin and my shame and my hurt, I run into the arms of God. The one who knows me and cares for me and made me. And the psalmist then seems to record the, the sting of emotions that flood over him as he remembers being close to God, as he remembers ministering and worshiping with the people of God. He, he was close as compared to where he finds himself now, Mount Mizar, the valleys of the, the, the source of the River Jordan, way, way away from Jerusalem, way out of the way of the people of God, way in the north of the land, middle of nowhere. That's where he finds himself now, and it stings and it seems his spiritual state of separation is echoed by his geographic separation from God and from his people. He is in a far-off land, and it pains him to be there. And I think if COVID has taught us hopefully anything, it's that we need God, and we need 
one another. I need you. I need you. I need God. And we should be moving heaven and earth to make sure we prioritize getting together with God and getting together with one another. It's incredible how quickly we've become already, I've become complacent about that, just taking it for granted again. No, let's learn the lessons. Commit to being in community with fellow Christians and prioritize worshiping and learning from God together. Go for it. Make it a priority. If you ask the psalmist, and it's my experience as well, showing up is half the battle won. Just being there is half the battle won. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The psalmist continues this prayer of kind of keeping it real. Most commentators would agree that that this phrase shouldn't be read, this initial phrase, shouldn't be read as a positive thing. I, I, I probably always did. I thought, ah, deep calls to deep. This is clearly our depth, the depth of my heart calling out to the depths of God's heart. That is not how most people would say this is supposed to be read and applied. It gets darker before it gets better. This deep is the depths of his pain and his despair and his circumstances at the moment. And that this very deep despairing moment and experience seems to call, almost crawl out, invite another wave of depth of despair to come over him. And this frequency of his deep despair seems to be coming over him and it traps him under the roars of this powerful waterfall that keeps coming and keeps coming. And similarly, his experience is like swimming in the ocean, he says, and these large waves keep rolling over him. And they toss him, they churn him, and they hold him down, and just before his aching lungs collapse, and he gives out, unable to catch his breath, the next wave pummels him, and pummels him again. The psalmist was in such deep water that he says he almost despaired of life to the point of suffocation. You know, and if you think back to our rule of fours, here's the air. He's kind of referencing the fact that God is our air. We don't just drink Him. We don't just eat Him. We breathe Him. He is everything to us. So even in the midst of this chaos, the psalmist recognizes that the waterfall, the breakers, and the waves are all of God. They are His. He is sovereign over them. And there is no depth that He can descend to, no tossing, no churning that can separate Him from the presence and the love of God. If you're going through the churning right now, let these words be an encouragement to you. There is no churning that can separate you from the love of God. They are His waves And he is sovereign over them. 
He will hold and sustain you through. Verse 8. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. See, even at the deepest depths of his despair, the psalmist is able to remember the faithfulness and the loving kindness of God. The, the name he uses, Yahweh, it's the, this covenant promise name of God. And it's used very rarely in this section in book two of the Psalms. This, I think it's Psalm 42 to 78 or something is book two. It's used very rarely, and here it's used very powerfully. The writer reminds himself of God's promises that cannot be broken because they are the covenant that He has made with His people. And this is why, although all looks bleak and the writer is despairing even to the point of death, he is able to remind himself that God has commanded His steadfast love to be with Him in the daytime and even more so in the night when, when life is even worse by His song that comforts the heart, Yahweh's song. God gives him, gives this steadfast love as He has commanded, and this song as a comfort, as a, as a prayer from within the desperate, despairing psalmist, not as a prayer to the God in His death, but to the God of life, the God of His life. See, the God of life desires to do us good, to do you good. But we need to put ourselves in the place to receive His goodness. God loves you too much to force Himself into our lives. Particularly if we're just not interested. You know, once you, you've got the emotional bandwidth, once we've started emptying ourselves out of the gunk in our lives and we create a bit of capacity and we, we need to keep filling ourselves with God, with His Word, keep receiving His grace through community, these wonderful vehicles that we were talking about in our formed series. Keep enjoying God's good gifts to us and through us to others. Sundays, G1Cs, threes, serving teams, ministering, trusting God for buildings to facilitate His mission. We need to keep leaning in, putting ourselves in the place where God can do what He wants to do in us and through us. And I think this is especially critical if you're someone here this morning and you're exploring Jesus. He won't force Himself on you. He doesn't force Himself into your heart. He warms your heart to start believing some of this stuff. And it gives you faith. But you still need to take personal responsibility for some practical steps in responding to His call in your life. Maybe do that this morning. We'll have the opportunity. Let's carry on in verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? You see, the, the psalmist applies this sort of bit of a surge in his own faith as he's mulling and musing over these truths of who God is. And he starts applying it to his current situation. And he, he, 
addresses God directly, and I think like so many of us should do. God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? But even as I cry out to God and I lament, He knows that God is His rock. God remains firm and faithful and steadfast. The one in whose ultimate goodness He can trust and who won't be shaken. In verse 10, as we're with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You've certainly heard the phrase, sticks and stones won't break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. And the psalmist would agree, and I think experience would agree with that. Words can wound incredibly deeply. And all of us can probably even now think of a, an incident where an influential person's words have cut us so deeply. And we still either bear the wound or the scar of that incident. And part of the pain here is not that the adversaries are atheists that is, are taunting our psalmist about there not being a God. The sting of the taunt is that they know there's a God and that this God has seemingly abandoned him. See, maybe the taunters were aware of some grievous sin that the psalmist had committed. Maybe something that would have caused him to have to flee Jerusalem to the outermost parts of the land. Maybe perhaps they make the assumption that he'd done something horrible, that God is seemingly abandoning him, and that that was an evidence that he had done some grievous sin. Whatever the re- reason is, we, we see the psalmist is left with a deadly wound of words, of taunts. But not all wounds are the same. Uh, many of you know Diego, uh, young Diego Tiervez. Uh, he had to go in to a hospital this last week to have an appendectomy. He's fine, by the way. Okay? Gone went well. But our sin is quite similar in some ways. It's like a painful appendix, all right? It's a wound that you need to repent of, to say sorry to God for, to receive His forgiveness and have it cut out. And then carry on living, right? That's sin. And we need to do that. It's critical. Because it's a wound that grows and festers and holds us back. But some wounds, sometimes they are from our own sin. They're self-inflicted. But often, these wounds are caused by others' sin towards us. And they're less like an appendix that you sort of cut out and then be done with. They are like burn wounds that you can't cut out. They take time. They take gentle nursing, gentle care. Darren Patrick is a, an American pastor who we actually, as part of the advanced church planting course, we read one of his great books. And so sadly, he took his own life in 2019. But he wrote about this. And he writes 
We often get sin and wounds confused. Sins are rebellious places in our hearts that need repenting. Wounds are tender places in our hearts that need healing. You cannot repent of wounds and you cannot go to therapy for sins. Oh, ain't that the truth? And we will take the opportunity this morning to, particularly when we're doing communion and just responding after, to be able to bring our wounds before God. Both wounds of forgiveness, things we want to bring, and so, God, cut this out. And also, God, I'm so sore. People have hurt me. I've got deep wounds, even scar tissue that needs your healing touch, oh God. And we're going to come to God who is good and willing and able, yes? Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Exactly the same phrase as verse 5. Exactly the same. That's where the poetry side of it comes in, isn't it? Wonderful. You do that even in English sometimes. But the psalmist lands again in the hope for the reader and for himself. It is good to feel emotions. It's good to ask the hard questions of ourselves, but there is a higher truth than just emotions. There's a higher truth than being true to yourself. I think particularly if you're a young person here this morning, they'll be saying to you every day, just be true to yourself. That's your highest truth. Be true to yourself. The psalmist and life, again, life experience for people in this room would say, no, there is a higher truth that we need to anchor our lives on. Higher truth than defining ourselves by our emotions or our circumstances, whether good or bad. Sometimes we define ourselves in our seasons of greatness and we kind of get stuck there. Or we define ourselves by our seasons of absolute emotional breakdown. No, we move through that, through the process into hope. Hope is in God. Salvation from death and death-like situations is only found in the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Hope is not only in God, it is God. And help, hope lets you do what the psalmist says, which is, I shall again praise Him. I shall again praise Him. In the middle of the depths of my despair and my woundedness, I shall again praise Him. Is this faking it till you making it? No, it's not faking it when you know there is, uh, when you know that uh, although life is tough right now, that there is a higher truth and a higher reality than what can be seen and experienced right now. You're not faking it when you know that to be true. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, we're told in Hebrews 11.1. The evidences of things hoped unseen. The fact that you have faith this morning is evidence of the higher truth and the reality of the things that we are hoping for. 
Nobody in their right mind believes just because in the, the stories of the gospel, stories of Jesus. Nobody does that. You require God to open our hearts and to plant faith in us. That's why we can stand firm when the waves and the wind blow. When reading the psalm, as with every other part of Scripture, we often ask ourselves, where else have I read this? Where, where else? What does this point to? And even in this psalm, although it's somewhat veiled, there is a, a pointing to someone. There's a man who experienced daily refreshing from God as he withdrew and prayed and read the Scriptures and was continually filled with living waters. There's a man who became the giver of God's fresh living waters that flow from the innermost parts of our souls that well up to eternal life. There's a man who leads a new procession of God's saved people through grace, through faith, and who invites us to join in. There's a man who was crucified and died away, outside, far away from the city of God, the people of God, the presence of God, the temple. But his death in our place invites us to come not into a temple made of human hands, but into the very presence of God by his Spirit. There's a man who was actually abandoned. Our psalmist fears abandonment, but there was a man who was actually abandoned by God on the cross as he became sin for us, took our place so that those for whom he died, there'd never need to be abandonment again. And we can draw near to him with faith and joy and clear conscience and draw near to one another. There's a man who, though he was perfect and innocent and holy, experienced the wounds and the taunts of evil men. Ah, if you are God, take yourself down off the cross. And ultimately, one of these evil men would even turn around and say, surely he was the Son of God. Wow. A man who knew what it was to have a certain hope in God, to persevere, sweat blood, go step by step, and who would place his mortal body through death, but be born again, be raised to certain imperishable life, hope. This man, obviously, is who? Jesus. Jesus. This man in whom we faith, uh, place our faith is Jesus. And he's not merely the ABCs of becoming a Christian, right? Believe in Jesus and you go to heaven. That's not what this is about. The psalmist would say that, no, this, the shadows, the hope, the expectations that is in this man is not the ABCs, it's the A2Zs of every 
area of our life that God wants to help us in, heal us in, forgive us in, empower us to live lives for His glory, our joy, and the good of others. That's why we have our hope in God, dear God first. That's why we worship Jesus. It's why the psalmist had this unshakable hope beyond what he could see and perceive. Isaiah, 400 years after the psalmist, but 600 years before Jesus, writes about Jesus in this way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's body and soul. We like, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Wow. God first, let's land with this profound statement. You are not a deer. How much more will the goodness, the grace, and the mercies of God come and abide with us, strengthen us, help us pour out our stuff and fill us again with His goodness, heal us, save us ultimately to the end. Let's continue to seek Him and worship Him. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.